Hey, welcome to the Parallax Podcast. I'm Liz Brown. In this week's conversation, I caught up with social impact leader Nick Torres. Nick currently serves as executive director of the Network Towards Unity for Health, a health association based here in Philly that's affiliated with the World Health Organization. The network fosters equitable community-oriented health services, education, and research worldwide through collaborative cross-sector partnerships, positioning itself as an interprofessional, multicultural, and global hub. He is also the co-founder of Social Innovation Partners alongside Teen Hansen Turin, which produces the Social Innovation Journal, Institute, and Lab. He also teaches nonprofit leadership, social policy, and social entrepreneurship at the University of Pennsylvania. Here's our conversation. You've had a really extensive career in the social sector. You served as the president of Congreso de Latinos Unidos. You've created a number of social impact organizations as well, and you currently serve as the network towards Unity for Health and Teach at Penn. What led you to become so invested in the social sector? That's a lot of stuff going on. I think it was started with when I was an Eisenhower Fellow back in 2008 and had gone down to Argentina. In my Eisenhower Fellow, you talked to a lot of people. And what I realized is everybody had this entrepreneurship spirit and everybody was entrepreneur, whether it was in the private sector or the social sector. And I realized it's like, how come we don't have that same culture in Philadelphia? Coming back... Uh, we realized, my colleague and I, Teen Hansen Turner, said we need a social innovations journal where people can really talk about that. But that was the real intention was to create a culture of innovation in the social sector, which did not exist. This is back in 2008. So you're saying there is an ecosystem of now here in Philly? I would say it's evolving. It evolves very well in the private sector because you have to have research and development to develop your products. But in the social sector, it's a little trickier just because the funding mechanisms for innovation in the social sector, there's not a lot of money that gets driven into innovation. So then people have to innovate outside of those funding mechanisms. And without that funding, people aren't necessarily always incentivized to innovate. And you also believe that social innovation is needed to tackle the unmet social needs that government cannot solve independently. I'm kind of curious to know if you could explain your thoughts around that and also what social innovation means to you. So I think starting with the sectors, government does innovate. And we had done an, a whole edition on how government innovates. But it's innovation for them is within things they're primarily responsible for. When you shift it, government's role is not necessarily to innovate. It's to take policies and then administer those policies to the public sector as a whole. And there's not a lot of innovation in there as a whole. So it really requires a nonprofit sector or for-profit social impact uh, individuals to say, where is this innovation coming from? And so that's, I think, why when we think it says, what's the primary sector for this innovation? It needs to be independent bodies who do a lot of experimentation, say, does this particular work? Although we don't necessarily do it as well as we should be. So when you get to your definition of what is social innovation – the key component that the nonprofit sector doesn't necessarily do is check to the what we call the end consumer, the individual that's supposed to be the recipient of the service or the product. And usually we respond to the funders, whether that be government, philanthropy, foundations, whoever's funding us or the individuals. But we always forget that end of the day, it's all about the person that we're trying to serve. And we forget to ask them whether our services or products meet their needs. And unless we do that, we don't create social innovation. You really need to have human-centered design at the center <laughs> of those conversations. We've taken a human-centered design to the next level, which we call rapid prototyping, because human-centered design is oftentimes we're still talking to the same people in the same circles, in the same rooms. Rapid prototyping means you have to go out to the people you're trying to serve and get feedback from them on a consistent basis. And then that adaptation process through their feedback leads to the actual innovation. 
But that's so hard for people to do. It's so hard for people to go walk the streets, stand in front of grocery stores, talk to the real people that live in cities and say, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And get honest feedback from them. Do you have any examples of social innovation here in Philadelphia. You were showing us a map before this, a map of the social innovation ecosystem. So, you know, I think there's two types. You know, there's social innovation, and then we also, there's also this push towards social enterprise. Social enterprise oftentimes means there's a financial model behind it. But, you know, social innovation oftentimes means there may not be a financial model behind it, meaning that you might still need government or philanthropy to fund what you're trying to do, and therefore you shift to social impact. Social enterprise means you can actually go directly to a consumer and say, what do you need, what do you want, and maybe you'll purchase that that process even though it may be somewhat subsidized for those different processes. And two of them take sometimes different tax in terms of when you're going out there to do that. I particularly like the social enterprise model because no matter how much you charge the individual, it should be you know appropriate to what they can pay, is you are proving that they do want your service or your product versus sometimes social innovation. We get caught in this circle where we think they want it because we're providing it for free because sometimes the funders and government requires to do that. But if we actually charged even five cents or a quarter or a dollar for these services, <laughs> they might not even show up for it. So I think there's two different processes when I think of I separate social innovation and social enterprise. So any, I think you asked a question of like an examples of social innovation. Well, I think my definition of social innovation is is when it happens between organizations, not necessarily within organizations, because it's the coming together of two different entities or individuals or what's what say. And it's that process that actually creates new spaces, which is new innovation. Some people critique that we haven't had any social innovations in the uh, Philadelphia system because we're just bringing up old ideas. And I was, you know, I try to remind them, it's like, it's not that the ideas are bad. Oftentimes it has the opportunity or the right ecosystem environment ready to take those ideas to the next level. And so it's not that we're creating anything new anymore. You know, we have all the answers to our social sectors. It's really about the implementation of it. And sometimes it just takes implementation means different key actors need to come together to actually get the work done. Whose responsibility is it to map out the ecosystem and bring people together? So it's it's a great question, and I think you kind of hit on exactly why we don't do as much innovation because nobody necessarily owns it. Nobody says it's my responsibility, and there's no necessary funding for it. So it really becomes the individual civil society to, to take that and own it. So, for example, we in the journal, we've kind of owned that and said – it's our responsibility, even though it's an unfunded mandate, to start putting this glue together because nobody's funding the glue. But if we only did things for funding, then it wouldn't really be innovative anyway. So we're doing it regardless. But I think it comes together saying if we create these ecosystems and say it's everybody's responsibility to bring people together to serve as that connecting point, it's all of our responsibilities. You had mentioned your partner, uh, Teen. So how did you and Teen Hanson Turton meet? And what inspired you to found uh, Social Innovations Partners? So we met through the Eisenhower Fellowship. We were both on the, I think, of like a 12-hour flight to Brazil. Oh, wow. Where Eisenhower had a conference. And we both pulled out Stanford Social Innovation Review. And we were, uh, um, you know, that kind of sparked a conversation that really led to this 10-year history of innovating and creating new initiatives that 
I would like to say that sparked interest and motivated and inspired other people to do the same. And that's really the, been the basis of the journal. You know, our most recent thing is this, the Greater Philadelphia Social Innovations Awards, because there's not a platform for anybody who's innovating in the social sector to get known in the area. So we did this public nomination process to say, who are you? And anybody can nominate you. And then there's a public voting process based upon the content of your innovation, and then those are the winners. But what we've known, we've done it for since 2017, but we've realized is that the first year we knew 60% of the people, and then the next year we knew 50% of the people, and the next year we knew 40% of the, uh, the people, and, and so it's on and on. And we realized is that we're pulling out from the ecosystem of Philadelphia the true innovators that none of us who sit in certain circles don't really know. And so the, the, the awards have become this great conduit of saying, who's doing this amazing work and impacting people's lives? I call them plow horses versus show horses. Because <laughs> we usually hear about the show horses, but we never hear about the plow horses because they're so busy doing that they don't really promote themselves. So we think this is the best way that in Philadelphia to say, who are these amazing people and how do we recognize them? That sounds really interesting. How do people learn more about that? We have about 20,000 readers that we've accumulated over 10, 10 years for the journal. So we just put it out there publicly. And if you're on the list, you know about it. But we hope that we add people every year to the public voting process. And so we hope that we stay current. It goes across both city, academic, foundations, communities. It's a very mixed group of people. And so hopefully it's 20,000 people is enough to keep the movement going. And that 20,000 talks to a lot more people. You mentioned the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal what does that aim to achieve, and what do you think the impact has been? So we get the question all the time. It's like, so if we were to invest or provide funding for the journal, what is your impact? And we struggled with that because when we, when we teach, especially when we teach nonprofit leadership, we say people need to demonstrate their social impact. But the reality is, you know, how, how do you demonstrate impact through journalism other than people read your journal? So our theory is that we've inspired people to – take the information and the knowledge that has been shared um, because it's it's focused on models and then take it internally and then use that information to innovate within their own institution themselves, initiatives, their own enterprise as such. Can we track it? We can't really track it. So we're, we're just based upon the fact that we use kind of the private sector model saying is like, well, if people continue to show up and buy our product, they must want it, right? So we're saying is like as long as people continue to want the journal and the events and stuff, then we'll continue doing it. Um, so that's kind of been our impact. However, we've tried to shift it to say, how do we narrow down this large group of people who all are innovating in different stages, but how do we actually demonstrate some impact for that? And so we created the Social Innovations Lab, which is really an opportunity for people to take their innovative ideas and experiment with it and create a almost like a pitch so that then through that process, they either say, I had a great idea, but you know what? It's just not going to work, so I'm going to put it to bed and I'm going to move on to other things. Or they advance it enough to point that they need to be put in front of potential investors. And then some investors will say, we love that idea, and then, they, then they're connected to that person and hopefully they launch, and sometimes they don't launch. But it's also a test to say, do they have value in the marketplace as a whole? So how does the Social Innovations Lab work? Is it more like an incubator or a co-working space? Like how do it's kind of an incubator, but so we published a, a book called The Social Innovators Playbook, which is kind of a recipe of what every social entrepreneurship across the globe goes through. It's sort of the same process. So after working with so many of them, we said, 
you know, there's themes in this. People kind of think the same way. They have the same pathway. So we just took it down, put it on paper, said, here's a process. Here's key questions you have to ask yourselves. But then we invite people to a table um, or a room, and we take them through a process. They actually learn from each other through kind of the human-centered design, rapid prototyping, um, to get their idea and making sure it has it. We at, we're probably more comprehensive than most incubators out there because we really push them on the financials and saying, you know, you need to figure this part out because otherwise you won't have those investors. So we help them develop concrete financial models as if they were in the private sector so they can articulate that to potential investors. And then we also push them heavily on the systems and policy change because we want them to think globally and replication. Because if you have something really good, you're eventually going to come into contact with government that passes policies and systems, which is sort of our big nonprofit, for-profit institutions that where most of the resources go. And so if you your idea is good, you're going to come against them or across them, and you need to be able to influence them, either for them adapt, adopting your model or for them to adopting their own models or adapting it based upon your model. What are some of the common barriers and themes that you are seeing through the Social Innovations Lab? Probably the biggest challenge that most of these social innovators, entrepreneurs have is the marketplace is flooded, meaning that all the philanthropic flexible dollars are goes to current nonprofits in, who exist in the field. And so to pull, to yeah, tap into the— get funding, it's easy to get funding again. Yeah, to tap into that <laughs> and be something new, it's so hard to do. And then the other side is our philanthropic community does not operate as a uh, social impact investors. The, you have angel investors who have criteria that look at the particular criteria, but we still fund for historical organizations who do great work, but there's not room for new innovations to come into play. It's hard to get to know those particular people. And therefore, amazing ideas, amazing products, amazing services, and yet they oftentimes don't go anywhere because they can't get that seed funding to get them launched. Yeah, I mean, I've been working in venture capital for the past year now, and I've been working with startups, uh, mostly tech startups, for the past 10 years on and off. And it's been really interesting to go from developing products to working on the other end in venture capital. And I've had a lot of social impact people reach out to us about giving funding to companies, but it seems like even they don't know how to target the right people. The market here in Philly is still immature in some ways but also way more mature than people think in other ways. So I'm curious to know how you would characterize the social social impact ecosystem here. We've kind of personally taken on that as a challenge because we say, let's just say there's, you know, Philanthropy Network has about 70 philanthropic members of them who each have their own policies, their own boards, their own, uh, how do they make funding decisions? But a significant amount of money goes out there to the sector um, that goes into them. But if you think about it, they come to these events, but they have not changed how they give. They still give in the very traditional matters to do that. And so our goal is to say, last year, we, we recognized 20 of these foundations. And it was interesting is the evolution of the innovation was coming from giving circles. So it was funny. It was like Black Women Give or the Awesome Foundation. And they were really new adopters to how to do it. But more traditional ones, like the large ones, like a William Penn, Philadelphia Foundation and such, continue to give in traditional ways. So the question is, how do we get these innovative foundations, oftentimes family-based foundations, to, in a sense, disrupt the larger foundations to say innovation needs to be part of your giving process? On the other end of it, you have your venture capitalists and your angel investors who oftentimes they want social impact, 
but they won't touch the nonprofit community because they have to return the financials back to their investors or so. They don't really care about high return, but they do they care about the return. So you've got this other place too that says that nonprofits, you've got this big push that sometimes people don't have to incorporate as a nonprofit. They incorporate as a for-profit with social impact, but that's only when angel investors or venture capitalists will tap into them. So we've got this kind of divide, and we oftentimes talk to people who live in this ecosystem space. You almost have to have a foot in both sides. You have to have a foot in the nonprofit side and the for-profit side, and then it becomes you to figure out how to weave them at the end of the day because, you know, the circles out there still exist in isolation in silos of each other. Yeah, and I would say for anybody that is doing something social impact related and looking for venture capital to help fund that, the difficult part is that a lot of people that are working as VCs don't have experience with nonprofits. And a lot of people that are running some of these really awesome local organizations also don't have experience <laughs> with nonprofits. So it becomes this this whole game where you have to learn how to sell that and explain why you chose to have your business go in both directions. I also want to know what you think in regards to how Philadelphia compares to other ecosystems abroad and across the U.S. Just to give a comparison, we've done work in Boston. We had an event in Boston. We had one in Chicago. We had one in Seattle. We did some internationally in South America. And then we've published editions in Europe and Asia and stuff. And I don't think necessarily Philadelphia is different or necessarily behind I think we may lack some of the glue that brings all the pieces together because we have all the pieces. We just haven't necessarily put them together in a comprehensive whole. Different uh, cities, they may be driven by one particular entity who's put a lot of funding to the glue of it and said, this is what we're going to do for our particular city and we're going to be the glue for that. Philadelphia doesn't have that that mechanism, that glue where all these individual parts. That's where I think we're lacking. Even in the investment side of it is like we don't see many deals going through for nonprofits outside of philanthropy or even these startup companies. We don't see out many of them going into those maybe outside of technology or so. But the money's there. It's that what we failed to do is put the glue together, and we've failed to provide the platform for people to learn from each other. We're also seeing this biggest transfer of wealth from, you know, the older generation to this younger generation. And the younger generation wants social impact, but they're kind of looking and say, well, where do we go? How do we find them? And that doesn't exist. The only platforms we have are some household names like United Way. Well, those are good organizations, right? Because they went through United Way's um, criteria. But those aren't the social impact organizations, the innovative organizations. And so the investor says, well, where do we find them? And there isn't a place. I think the best place right now is probably the Social Innovations Journal because you can at least read and research on your own about people's innovations. Don't know if those lead to investments, but that's probably our, our biggest challenge right now. So why did the, the project shift from local ecosystem to a global one? And how do you build a bridge between local and global impact? I think we shifted for one simple reason, that we had a value-added proposition for everybody, and that's this journal. When we went to Chicago, to Boston, and we visited all these other cities, we realized they all had their own version of a lab. They all had their own version of investor space, but nobody really had a distribution channel. So that allowed the journal to go talk to them, learn about them, and and in a sense be a part of the glue that brought their ecosystem together. So that was kind of this interesting thing. And then we said, well, that's our value as a journal, but we're not going to go into any of these cities and do what they already do. There's already players in those particular things. 
So what we're really trying to do is I'm using the frame community of practice. In the social sector, we are such a niche community. We're not your typical journal that has, you know, let's say 10 million, 20 million readers or so, but we are such a niche community that actually cares. And so there's, you know, the addition for Asia, for example. We have all the right players in Asia. We know the players in Europe. We did Latin America. And it's like, but there are small communities who all care about this social impact. And so when we bridge them, they're all having that same conversation. So I think it's really to say by putting some international journals out there and stuff and having the right people write for the journal, they're sharing their knowledge. And what people hopefully will realize is we're all struggling with the same issues. That's the global side of it. End of the day, impact is all local. So it's all about what we do in our own respective ecosystems, which is now we're kind of refocusing back into Philadelphia and say, everybody's struggling with the same thing. So the best thing we can do is make the Philadelphia region as strong as it can. So it can serve as a global example how other people can do that. And it's really about the glue of who serves as that glue to bring these local ecosystems together. I actually travel to quite a bit of cities across the states and also internationally for tech conferences mostly. And it's been really interesting that I I hear the same thing about Pittsburgh. People say, hey, like there's no one bringing it all together. There are all these different actors out here. And I keep hearing the same thing repeated about cities being so siloed and fragmented and innovators aren't finding each other. This is a common issue. How does this keep happening and why is it happening in so many cities? Part of it is ego. You know, by being human, we all have these egos. We all work for these institutions. And in some sense, we're supposed to, by our job function, represent that institution. And another function is, you know, we want to be that center of attention in a sense. And so the only way to solve this process is to come into an ecosystem and be the non-ego persona necessarily. And so it's like, let everybody else support everybody else's initiative. And then kind of say, everybody's a different player, but as an individual, you're not going to achieve anything. But as a collective, you can achieve everything. You know, what we're trying to actually do in Philadelphia is to say, we're, you know, we just figured out our role. Our role is to find innovators, promote innovators, help capacitate some of these innovators, but ultimately help all the other ecosystem players be successful by doing our part of the whole. And then if our role is not to do the other part, we do as much uh, support of those other systems as a whole. But we're not trying to be everything to everybody. We're just saying we play a small part in that. And that means we put our ego aside and support everybody else in the process. It's a wicked problem. There's so many pieces to the puzzle that have to be put in before you can finish it up. Yeah. And what we fail to do sometimes is in architecture or school design, I think you were urban planner or yes, design. Yes, I did my urban planning degree in a school of architecture. So we've learned to appreciate how their minds think because they put different pieces together and visualize an ecosystem. Oftentimes that doesn't happen. So, But if we could do that and tap into engineers, designs, and, you know, human-centered design or whatever, they provide a different skill set that will probably help us map this out. And then that almost provides a roadmap of how we all fit together. We talked a little bit about funding and things like that and, you know, how important it is and how difficult it is to receive funding, especially in a place like Philadelphia where we're still growing in that area. What are your thoughts around how we can start to solve this problem of the lack of funding or access to funding? Is it the lack of funding or is it access to the funding? Many would probably argue it's a lack of funding, but I think the first challenge is how do we redistribute the current funding mechanism so there's innovation takes place in that there too. Um, you said earlier bridges. 
So it's all about building bridges. If you're a, a family foundation or if you're an angel investor, you exist in certain circles and you do not necessarily organically come across people who, you know, are the social innovators or the innovators within the city because they're doing these different things. So we need to build those bridges, those new platforms for them to engage. One is online, right? So we can actually create platforms. And there's one group out there saying, we're going to create this platform for funders to find social enterprises. And they're doing it. It's, it's going to be launched very soon. But the other part, I think, at the end of the day is people need to connect to people. And we need that physical connection, that conversation. Technology only leads us so far. But unless you meet a person, you don't necessarily, you know, build that trust and that buy into their ideas. And so that's what we're really trying to do is we need more places for people to meet. So what we're doing is we're saying, we're going to, through our social innovation labs, and then we used to do these pitch events, and then we did these story, uh, or we call them pitch slams, really to create more of those places to say, we need to bring this, quote unquote, funding community and these innovators together in the same room so they can meet each other. And it's really that meeting each other, having a conversation, and then that hopefully will lead to more conversations. It's worked in the past, but sometimes we just kind of forgot about how important that human interaction is in this bridging these two different worlds. Do you think that having that funding is critical? for the success of social impact movers and shakers? Yes and no. I think the true innovators, like we're just we're just doing it because we know it's important to do it. And our thought is that eventually the funding will follow to support the infrastructure of it. But we can't wait for funding to do it because then we just end up waiting too long and then the project only survives as long as the funding is there. So the funding is not the key component of there, although I'm one person, teens one person, other one one person, we have limited capacity. So if we want to do more of it, then funding needs to come in on the back end to support some of the infrastructure because otherwise we're limited to the capabilities and time and effort of, of individuals and that doesn't scale. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I've done a lot of things with <laughs> with very little, um, and I've been working with underrepresented founders very frequently for the past few years. The whole thesis of the venture capital firm that I was working with was how underrepresented founders can do a lot more with very little because we're so used to just figuring it out. And I feel the same way about people in social impact. We're problem solvers. When you're working in social impact, you're driven by solving problems and creating positive change. So you're going to do that kind of work no matter what. But I think that funding to support those those types of projects is really important, especially if we want Philadelphia to be a leader in the movement towards social impact, innovation in that area. Yeah, I agree. There should probably be more funding for the glue, but funding the glue is not that expensive relative to the total amount of funding in there. Where you need to do is if you brought the glue together, um, the theory is that it should drive funding differently. And that's where I think we need the most change is that the investors, I like to call them investors, not funders, because you're investing in something. Either you get a financial return and a social impact or you just get that social impact. But I think it's an investor versus a funder. Funder means you're kind of giving away your money and you you hope <laughs> for the best, right? But these investors are saying you want you want a return on, on those. But, you know, we, we need more in the investment community to come out. I think we're like two or three years ahead of what we need to happen because I think the people who control a lot of the wealth, especially in the Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia area, are asking for things differently. But as you said earlier, they just don't know how to find where they should put their money. So they're putting in traditional ways of doing that. But that's going to change. It's upon us to actually say, what's that platform so the people can find each other? 
I'm also really curious about, to learn more about the network towards Unity for Health, the organization calls itself a multidimensional network of networks. What does that mean to you? Tell me a little bit more about that. So this takes us to the global world of World Health Organization, United Nations or so, and I've only been doing this work for a year, but it's the same problems we're trying to solve here locally. And so when you get into this global space, there's amazing research and policy from World Bank, WHO, and they they developed all these policies that really could change healthcare uh, for people around the globe, right? But the issue really is when you get to the local level, and I define local country by country, because on the global scale, that's probably the best we can get, is it's really hard to turn those global policies to local action. And there's associations across the board who are all struggling with this same thing. Part of the issue is that there's only enough funding to support the networks, uh, the associations, but a lot of that money doesn't translate back to local actors. And so the question is, like, how do we even flip that funding mechanism a little bit? But the network of networks, and so we've, we have institutional members, we have individual members, but ultimately what we're trying to do is become the network of networks. So we're calling, bringing all these global networks together to say our job collectively is to help the local actors, those local policy change agents, have the capacity, both the knowledge, intellect, you know, training, but partly the funding, and I say funding in the glue sense, because we can't replace, but we can fund the glue so that they actually can make change at the local levels. And I think that's what we're trying to do. When I started the network, I was like, I don't want to do this unless there's a potential for real impact. And running a, an association with a conference, that's not impact. So we have to flip it. And so this is kind of our theory of how we're going to do that. Yeah. What are some of the other examples of how you're flipping things through that? Through the network? Yeah, through the network. I think this is probably the big one, right? Just bringing all these associations together to say, same thing as a Philadelphia ecosystem. You need to talk to each other. You need to collectively answer the question for this. The other way we're doing together is task forces. So most of the members represent, you know, the top medical schools within their particular countries, right? But these medical schools oftentimes don't talk to each other. So we're kind of creating this global, interdisciplinary, intersectorial sort of best practice, community practice. And so you have different professors across the globe who are going to, in a sense, co-teach in a scope and sequence. But I think more importantly is that we're going to bring examples, case studies from the field, and we're going to bridge the academia with the practitioners and create this community practice where they can actually learn from each other, right? Because again, these are two communities who don't come together, but they should come together. And the reason they don't is just not a platform for them to come together. And then putting that in a public domain means that anybody in the world can actually learn from each other, just like this podcast. People can actually listen to it, get inspired, and then maybe some of them will say, oh, I want to take it to the next level. How do we actually uh, take this knowledge and I apply it, and I need help to do that. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on how do we ensure that social impact involves both environmental and social justice and that social innovations are created by and not just for diverse groups. Key and for social impact social space should be not for uh, diverse or, you know, oftentimes marginalized communities, but it should be created by them, right? So usually what we do is we create four, and then we ask, ask the questions like, why nothing changed? Or why didn't they like our ideas? Because it was never created in a collaborative spirit by them. So it's really this combination. And so it's like, unless you're involving people in the process, um, you're not going to achieve that social impact that you really want to do. And the only way they do that is joining with them, but letting them, uh, whatever group, however you self-define yourself, <laughs> 
whether it be a neighborhood or whether by ethnic group or however you self-define yourselves, is they really need to lead that process and define it differently. And what you'll find out is their solution is probably so different than what you thought the solution should be, but you'd be so surprised at how it now works. We took the lab into companies, and here's just an anecdote and said, and I think it works. When the top comes up with an idea, it's not that they come out with the, the wrong idea. It's informed by research. It's informed by data, and it's where the company should go. But then they take that idea and then they try to sell it to their employees and you know and consumers and nobody buys it and they're like well, what's wrong with our idea all the data and research said to do it and it's not that it was wrong it was the process that was wrong and so we actually go into the companies and say invite the people within your company to come to the social innovations lab sort of process. And ironically, they go through a process that breaks down silos, creates a culture of innovation with an organization. But in the day, their ideas boiled down to almost the same ideas as what the research and the data actually said. But now it's easy to implement because you've already got the buy-in from the entire thing because it came from them, not from the top. So by just reversing that process, you have achieved success. And that goes into these inclusionary practices. By reversing the process, you know, you can achieve success for social innovation, social impact in communities that's more inclusive. But again, we tend to just come in and tell them what the solutions are. And it's not that our ideas are wrong. It's just that the process was wrong. Yeah, the process has to be designed in a human-centered way. I'm really interested in what you think of as when you think of the future of Philadelphia and social impact, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Philadelphia has a great vision to be this innovative city to kind of lead the nation on this process. You know, we're not too big. We're not too small. We're sort of that. And if we can figure this out, we can showcase to the world how this can actually move forward. So there's a huge potential for what we do it. I would say Philadelphia needs to take lessons from Chicago, New York, who are more transactional in nature. They see things for what they're worth. And it's not based upon relationship, whether I like you or don't, or I know you or I don't know you. It's based upon do you provide value? And if you provide value, then I'm going to work with you. Philadelphia, I think, is still based a lot upon relationship of who you know if you're in the right circles. And so if we really want to achieve social impact, social innovations, we've got to move beyond the relationships, the politics. And we just kind of say is like take things for what their value and then include that ecosystem. So if you have value, I'm going to work with you. And we need those those platforms for people to find out who has value and who doesn't have value. And if you don't have value, then we need to figure out how to retire in a, in a, in a nice way those people who are no, no longer contributing to the ecosystem as a whole. What do you think is our biggest strength as a city when it comes to that? It's um, it's like a lot of people <laughs> would say is like, well, you can't say that. But it, I think it is the millennials who are really kind of pushing this. They've kind of created this whole bottom-up sort of thing is like, We need to do things differently. And although the millennials, I think, are struggling, they're now starting to find their places in institutions. My hope is that they don't lose that innovative, collaborative, collective sort of processes that they've really believed and defined that because now they're becoming into leadership and management positions in our institutions as a whole. So that's probably this biggest strength, but but they believe everything we just talked about and They just can't lose it and let the institutional behavior overtake them. They need to maintain that innovative as a collective is I think it is actually changing. And I know it's changed us, and this is sort of where we've learned a lot about that, and we just need to figure out how to embrace it. But I think it's probably a huge strength because they are the disruptors. They are the innovators. We just need to make sure we keep that spirit alive when they join the ranks of all these institutions and the leadership within government, 
private, and nonprofits. How can the listeners find out more about your work and get in touch with you? Well, the best place is to go to the Social Innovations Partners. Information is all there, but it's nick at socialinnovationspartners.org. Or you can always call my cell phone, 215-718-4250. People always said, don't give out your cell phone. Yeah, I was so like, that's, I, I like always, the, I'm thinking in my mind, wow. I always give out the cell phone because, you know, I usually don't get enough calls anyways because people only call you when they really think it's necessary. And, you know, over the years, I always it's all public information anyways. But, yeah, the website's always there updated. But, yeah, they can always find me. I'm looking forward to seeing what else you're working on and trying to get involved in some kind of way because we all need to do our part. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with me. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> Appreciate it. A special thanks to Christopher Heckler for editing today's episode, Kiliman Zigo for our music, our producers, Helene Forian, Lee Nentwig, and Nicole Koltig. This project is made possible by support from the Excite Center, the Design Futures Lab, and a recording space at the Dornsife Center for Community Partnerships at Drexel University. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>